If you've got your Bibles, you turn to Mark chapter 12, which is where we've got to in our journey through this incredible gospel. And let's just bow our hearts one more time. Oh Lord, we need you to reveal to us these truths in your word. Father, we can read the words, we can understand the, the surface text. But Father, the spiritual meaning, Lord, the lessons that you have for us, Father, can only be discerned spiritually. So Lord, help us to understand, Lord, to see with the eyes that you give us that allow us to comprehend this world in a so much bigger and fuller way than the natural man can perceive. And Father, we want to allow you to do that work in our lives of sanctification, of setting us apart. And so, Father, as you work this morning, Lord, we just pray that we will be open to you, that you would have a freedom just to minister and to move and to do what you are doing, Lord, that work of transforming us, Lord, making us complete in you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so four chapters to go in Mark's gospel. And we start with this uh, parable about a vineyard and so on. Now, initially, just to stay up front, the parables generally are given to reveal something that was previously hidden. Okay, that's what we're certainly we find in Matthew 13. We're given a really good introduction to parables. Um, they're not there just to tell a nice story to the masses. Uh, in fact, quite the, the reverse. Jesus spoke in parables to reveal things to his disciples, but to actually conceal it from the multitude. Having said that, a lot of the idioms and the ideas that Jesus uses would have been understood, certainly by a major, the majority of the people that have been listening, because this idea of the vineyard was well known to be a type of Israel. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, there's numerous references to Israel being a vineyard. And, uh, and of course, the Lord chides them a number of times for not bearing the fruit they should have done. Uh, and so clearly, there's a, uh, we, we have an idea of Israel um, straight up front. We'll look at the parable a bit, and then we'll talk in more detail. Let's just begin in verse 1. And he began, Jesus began to speak unto them. This is the multitude that are gathered by parables. And a certain man, he says, a certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and dig a place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. So this is the introduction that we're given to this. Now, just to try and break it down, we can spend all morning searching scriptures with references, but, uh, and I encourage you to be Bereans, search the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. Don't just take my word for these things. But I think you'll find that if you dig in, you're going to see that the certain man here is God the Father. Okay, in the context. A certain man planted a vineyard. The vineyard being, as we've already said, Israel. And there's a numerous references we could cite. The hedge... I believe, is symbolic of the law. Because God put a hedge around Israel to protect them, to keep them from intermarrying with other nations, to keep them from going off on their own tangents and, and incurring his wrath, although they still managed to do that. But this, this law that God gave the nation of Israel marked Israel as separate from all the other nations on the earth. 
There is no other nation that had the laws, even things like the hygiene laws that Israel had, the food uh, laws and so on. It's interesting when I speak to um, the Muslims, the colleagues I work with, um, they have food laws of things they can and can't eat, but they don't know why. And when they're challenged to it, they really don't have any basis to it. Um, when it comes to Israel, there's a real logic and sense in the laws that have been given. You see, although we are not under the law, the law was good. The law was given to be good. It wasn't, yes, of course, the law is there to show us that we are sinners. But each individual law that God gave wasn't just because he had nothing better to do, so he thought he'd give them some, some rules. Now, every law was for their health, for their benefit, and for their well-being. And, and you find that with the food particularly, the creatures they're not allowed to eat are typically the creatures that would scavenge off other creatures, and they would pick up parasites and so on. And so because Israel abstained from these certain foods, that are non-kosher foods and so on, and the kind of the garments and the clothing they wear, they, they had specific rules and regulations... Israel throughout history have remained relatively healthy. Where other nations have suffered from all sorts of plagues and illnesses and sicknesses, those things have not been in the same way upon Israel. So much so that other nations through history have uh, believed that Israel had cursed them because Israel were healthy and they weren't. No, they've got to put this hedge around Israel. And once again, it was also to stop them becoming intermingled with the other nations. Uh, almost every other uh, nation you could think of that's recorded in Scripture, you go back. You, you don't find the Hittites now. Uh, you, you don't find any of these other nations that are spoken of. They, they've just disappeared in the, the sands of history. Uh, they intermarried with other nations. The Philistines. I mean, you don't go out and find a Philistine today. You know, they've all intermarried. They've just, the, 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 the lines are diluted and they've gone. But Israel, you know, some three thousand years after the time of King David are still an identifiable nation. And of course, God has a plan and a purpose for them, and we'll talk at our Bible study uh, next time about the nation of Israel in more detail. So around Israel, there's this hedge, this protection, which I believe is symbolic of the law. Uh, and then we're told that God has digged a place for the wine fat. I think I'm speaking of Jerusalem. You know, there's this place that God had established this, this centerpiece for the nation, this place where ultimately the ark is uh, brought and where the temple then is built and so on. And we read, and built a tower. And again, I think that in reference here is the throne of David. This tower, we were talking a little bit about this at our Bible study uh, on Thursday evening about the throne of David. So all of these things... Uh, and maybe you think this is stretching some of the, the ideas too far, but dig into Scripture, and I think you'll find these things confirmed. Uh, but when we're told that, that God in this, or this, this man that's built this, or planted his vineyard and done these things, then lets it out to other men, to husbandmen, to look after, to tend, to keep, and so on. Well, who are the husbandmen? Well, typically it was the leadership of the, the nation of Israel, which by the time we get to the time of Jesus... We're dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees particularly. And we're told, and went into a far country. It's interesting that in Hosea chapter 3 verse 4, God had made this statement to the nation. He says, for the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince, 
without a sacrifice or without an image, without an ephod, without a teraphim. God's presence had been just as it was in the time of Samuel. People weren't used to hearing from the Lord. There's this whole period of history where God kind of stopped speaking directly to the nation. From the end of the um, time of Zechariah, when the, the return from the captivity, there's this long period of, of quietness and so on. And it's almost like God has kind of gone into this far country. He's gone away. He's left them to carry on to see how they get on. Well, we then read, and at the season, so the time appointed, he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. But then we read, and they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. I mean, it's an incredible situation that's being presented. Verse 4, and again, he sent unto them another servant. And at him, they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. You see, this is referring to the ministry of the prophets, those whom God had sent to the nation to speak to them, to encourage them, to keep them on track. And so many of the prophets ended up being killed believe that Isaiah is the prophet that's referred to in Hebrews 11 as the prophet that was sawn asunder, cutting half, um, believed to be by Manasseh, one of the worst kings of Judah. Uh, interestingly, Manasseh, at the end of his life, repents, and he does give his heart to the Lord. And it's such a dramatic transformation that his grandson, Josiah, becomes one of the best kings that Israel ever had. Again, we've talked before about the influence that grandparents can have on grandchildren. And young Josiah seeing this repentant grandfather who now served God. But before that point, Manasseh had done some really shameful and horrible things. As I say, seemingly one of those things was putting Isaiah to death. And, you know, there's a whole heap of these um, references that we could look at of prophets that were, were so badly treated. And God sending prophets to the nation, and they rejected them. Verse 5 carries on, and he sent another, and they kill, and him they killed. So, you know, the, the first lot they were treated very badly, and it gets worse and worse and worse, stoning and sending them away. And now finally they're getting to the point, they're just killing the prophets in this parable as Jesus presents it. And many others, beating some and killing some. Verse 6, having yet therefore one son. His well beloved. Of course, this is God the Father speaking of his own son. He sent him also last unto them. Interesting, isn't it? Because Islam was trying to debate this point. But we don't need any prophets after Jesus. There are, I mean, that's not to say that the, 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 the gift of prophecy doesn't exist within the church. But it's in a very different context to the way that the prophets operated in the Old Testament. Because Jesus comes last. At the end of this line of prophets, Jesus comes. The son of this certain man. The son of God the Father. One son. Well beloved. And he sent him also last unto them saying, they will reverence my son. Well, of course, we know the outcome. Verse 7 tells us, But those husbands said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. 
And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Now, at this point, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those that are there listening to these things, have probably got the idea. They get the idea that Israel is the vineyard, that God had sent his prophets and they'd rejected them. They couldn't deny that. They've got their own history to testify. But now they're being accused of conspiring against Jesus to the point they're going to kill him. Well, the truth was they were already conspiring to kill Jesus. And Jesus tells them that this is what's going to happen. You see, we have here a a desire to be in control by the leadership of the nation. You know, and we often find these kind of things occur, um, those who subversively try to control others. Now, initially, with the nation of Israel and the leadership, I've got no doubt that there were some sincere people. But it gets to the point that they don't want to give up this authority and this control that then they've kind of inherited, they've been given. And so they find ways to put others down and stop others doing things. You know, we actually see this incredibly, the history of the church. If you do a detailed study of the history of the Christian church, you'll find that the Roman Catholic Church didn't grow out of a desire to twist and pervert Christianity. It grew out of a desire to do things properly. But then that got twisted, and then we had this struggle and this fight for control between Jerusalem between, well, there's five locations in the church. Antioch, we have. We have Rome, Constantinople, or Istanbul, as we now know it. And then also in Egypt as well, the, the church that was, was growing there. And these various kind of places all started to, to argue about really who was most important, who was in control, and gradually... The church in Jerusalem obviously was disbanded because of the oppression from Rome. And so there was this kind of struggle between Antioch and between Rome and the church of the Christians in Istanbul and so on. And so it ends up that we end up with this this conflict that grew out of sincere people wanting to do the right thing, wanting to stop heresy. But the very basis of what they were doing was putting a form of structure and control in place that was not of God. It was not intended by God. And we end up with the the problems that really grew out of that period period of history, a fascinating period of history. And again, you look at some of the individuals that made some decisions, and you, you see that behind those decisions there was sincerity, but they were terrible for the life of the church. Well, this is kind of the thing that's being presented, that these people who believed that they were sincere and couldn't see that what they were doing was being manipulative and controlling and trying to dictate to the nation how God was going to use them and what God was going to do, and to the point that now the Messiah has come. And they reject the Messiah. Because they don't want to lose their position, that the Freedom, the limited freedom that Rome had granted Israel at this time was deemed too precious to give up. They couldn't see the bigger picture. They couldn't see the, the whole issue with sin that needed to be addressed and all the other things. So now they come and they end up 
plotting to kill Jesus. And as Jesus says here, they will, as we'll see, kill him. You know, sadly, God is the one who must lead. God is the one who must lead any church, any group of churches. Denominations, unfortunately, have come about. And so often those have been brought about because of good intentions. But man can't lead. Not, not godly things. And we don't have the wisdom. We don't have the ability. So the question then is, is put by Jesus. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? Directly answers the question. He will come and destroy the husbandman and will give the vineyard unto others. What a challenging statement. Again, the leaders will see, got the gist of what Jesus was saying. Again, note that the vineyard is God's. It is he who places it in trust. And the same applies to the church. Each individual congregation is placed in trust in the same way. And by the way, it's not a democracy. It's a theocracy. God is in control. And scripturally, if you do a study and you look at church government, although we've ended up with all sorts of different models within the church, it's, the, it's God who calls and appoints pastors. We find that in Ephesians. It's one of the ministry gifts. The, the role of pastor is the role that is appointed by God. It's not one that the congregation decide upon. You know, there are sadly many churches and congregations where the pastor has been appointed by the congregation. Well, what happens is that the congregation then, for whatever reason, at some time are unhappy with the pastor and then they... They vote the pastor out or they, they ask the pastor to go. And so the pastor is never free to really teach scripture because anything that's said that is not particularly comfortable becomes an issue. So that congregational style of government is fraught with problems and has been throughout history in many, many examples. By the same token, it's then the pastor's role to appoint elders to support and to work in that role as well. And we see that in scripture. Um, Paul encouraging Timothy to do just that. But it isn't a, a democracy in that sense. And in, in the same way that, you know, in our family, we don't go and ask Kamala, Mita, and Connie and Sharia to come up with the rules as to how we should run the house. Because they don't have the, the knowledge, the wisdom, or the experience to do that. And that's why, again, a congregation, scripturally, are not the ones that run the church. But again, a church is not run as a tyrannical regime. Because God, and he has done many times, and you've seen this through history, we see it so often with a pastor who goes off the rails. God will remove them. And God will always deal with situations. You know, the scripture makes it very clear that God is not mocked. And I honestly believe that you are better having a pastor who is accountable to God and not the congregation. Much better position because God will deal and has repeatedly dealt with pastors who do not serve him faithfully. Verse 10. Jesus carries on from this and says, Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. He says, This is the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus now Again, just quoting from the same scripture that the 
disciples have been singing and the crowd have been singing just a short while before from Psalm 118, saying that Jesus is that stone. Again, that idea of the stone uh, being a type of Jesus we see throughout Scripture. And the builders here, again, the leadership, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they, they've rejected Jesus. And he's going to become the head. He's become the most important part of the building. Again, this is the Lord's doing. God has engineered and done this. As so verse 12, we see the, the reaction that we kind of expect. They didn't want to let go of their power. They didn't want to go of this control that they'd found. Position they now put themselves in. And so they sought to lay hold on him. We were told, but feared the people. This is a very kind of, kind of tinderbox type of situation. They didn't want to upset the people. They didn't want to lose their control by getting people's opinion against them. As he very much, it was an opinion-based situation. They wanted to remove Jesus. But so, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. He, he knew that Jesus, or they knew that Jesus was saying that they were the ones who were going to be guilty of rejecting the owner's son. And then Jesus, clearly himself here, placing himself as the son of God. You know, it amazes me how often people try to make this claim that, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God or never claimed even to be the son of God. And these kind of silly things that people say. All through scripture, we find Jesus making it very clear that he was God manifest in the flesh. Sadly, so many try and reject that to their own detriment. And these leaders here, again, this, spoke, this parable spoken against them. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew already what was going on, the plotting that was taking place. And so they want to try and catch Jesus out now. And so we read this. And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians, now, we saw them way back in chapter 4, if you remember, getting together, conspiring together. The, these two groups did not like each other, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Herodians were those that were under Herod, who was an appointee of Rome. And, and the Pharisees hated the fact that Rome had control of their nation. But you see, isn't it the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of idea? playing out here. And so they kind of come together in this plot to try and catch Jesus. So the Pharisees, this religious group, and the Herodians come together to try and catch him in his words, looking for some reason to put him down. And when they were come, they said unto him, Master, <laughs> they don't believe that for a second. They don't believe that he's their Lord or Master or even a, they don't even accept his rabbinical title. People called him rabbi. They didn't like that either. But master, we know that thou art true. Just playing the game here. And carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of man, but teachest the way of God in truth. And once again, I think this is almost sarcasm coming out because I don't believe that they believe this. But they're, they're playing along. They're, they're just trying to get an opportunity to ask the question. And they say, so they say, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? And you can almost imagine that little smirk on their face as that question's asked. And they think, we've got him. There's no way out of this. 
Because, of course, if Jesus says, well, no, you're not to pay tribute to Caesar, well, that's it. The Herodians then pounce on him and they're going to take him before the authorities. And he's going to be charged with some sort of insurrection. Of course, if he says you are to pay tribute to Caesar, the Jews are going to pounce on him for not upholding the Jewish law. And they're going to claim, well, what about God? And so they think they've got him in this this kind of crossfire that he can't escape from. And they say, shall we give or shall we not give? But he, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, why tempt ye me? Interesting question in itself. I'm not sure whether it's, why are you even bothering to tempt me? Or what are you hoping to achieve? You know, what were they hoping to achieve? If they remove Jesus from the equation, how is everything suddenly better? You know, they've not really stopped to consider, is Jesus the Messiah? What characteristics would the Messiah show when he came? Because if they'd gone back to Scripture and they looked, everything they could see about Jesus was what they would have expected of the Messiah. But sadly, their mind was made up. They didn't want to accept Jesus. And unfortunately, there are many people in this world today that do not want to accept Jesus. And they're not bothered with evidence. They're not bothered with proof. They're not bothered with anything other than the hardness of their heart that has already confirmed them in the position they're in. And it's so sad. But he says, why tempt you me? And he says, bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it. And he said unto them, whose is this image and superscription? Now, they may have been kind of, why doesn't he know who, who this is? And they, they answered, they said, and they said unto him, Caesar's. The, the, the head on the, the coin you're looking at, that's Caesar's head. I'm sure they must have realized that he knew. Maybe just querying, wondering why he'd asked this. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God things that are God's. And they marveled at him. What an incredible statement Jesus makes here, because the coin belongs to Rome. All money belongs to the realm that issues it. The money that we have, it belongs to our government. They issue it. When it wears out, they replace it. It's their money, effectively. And so in this case, it was Rome. So Jesus quite rightly says, well, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But notice what he does. He, he, he asks about the image. Whose image is this? That which is in Caesar's image belongs to Caesar. But effectively, he then says, the things that are in God's image belong to God. You see, we have been made in the image and the likeness of God. We belong to him. So it's right and proper that we should pay taxes to the authorities that exist. And Paul makes this very clear as well. But ultimately, we are subject to God. And, and again, we thought they marvel at him. I mean, they're just suddenly shot down in flames. This argument, they thought that it was bulletproof, that they couldn't lose their, their 
objective of trying to trap Jesus has just fallen flat. Well, then the Sadducees decide they're going to have a go. And they then come on to the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. We've got these kind of two, two schools going on. We've got the Pharisees, as we said. We've got the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't accept things in a literal way as much as the, the Pharisees did. But the Pharisees have become too legalistic and too far the other way. And so they, they've got this place, but they don't believe the resurrection is something that's, that's true. It's not a real thing. It's you know, symbolic or whatever, this talk of resurrection. And, and this, again, this is why they were sad, you see. Have to put that in. Because they didn't believe in a resurrection. And of course, without a resurrection, what hope have we got? You know, if, if as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in this life we have hope, then we are all men most miserable. You know, unless there is something more, unless there's something to hope in, to believe in. Now, Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection is the bedrock, the foundation of our faith. So they come anyway and they say the resurrection. And they said to Jesus, Master, Moses wrote unto us, if a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him and leave no children that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now, now this goes back to Leviticus, this, this referred to as the Leverite law or the law of the Leverite marriage, where typically because of this land grant situation that God had granted the land to Israel and the land was to stay within the particular families, the particular tribes, it wasn't to be separated up amongst the nation. The, so that that land stayed where it should, under the ownership of the right families, the right tribes. That if somebody got married and they had no children, and then they died, then typically the, the brother would then try and raise up offspring on behalf of the brother that had died. Now, this is the idea. So what they're saying here is this is hypothetical situation. Again, trying to trick or trying to catch Jesus out and trying to prove, you see, there's no resurrection. If a man's brother die and he leave his wife behind and leave no children that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed after his brother. Now, he says there were seven brethren. The first took a wife and dying left no seed, had no children, no offspring. And the second took her and died, neither left he any seed. And the third likewise and the seven had her and left no seed. And last of all, the woman died also. And so now they ask their real question. In the resurrection, which they're saying it doesn't happen, doesn't exist. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. So in the resurrection, which one of them will be married to her? This is the question they're asking, thinking that they're somehow managed to trap Jesus in this. And Jesus answering, seven, do you? I'm sorry, do you not therefore err because you know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God? You see, so often questions that we have about things like resurrection and the things to do with eternal things, we need to really study Scripture. We were talking the other night in the Bible setting, saying that you know all the answers that we need are in Scripture, but sometimes we need to do some digging to find. And clearly... The Sadducees here had not been prepared to go and do their digging. They'd reached their conclusion quite quickly that there is no resurrection, for whatever reasons they had. It also says they neither know the power of God. This is for when they shall rise, Jesus says, from the dead, 
They shall neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. So Jesus makes this statement that once we are resurrected, the unions, the marriages that we've had on earth won't be so in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to know our spouses or... But there won't be the same kind of relationship that exists in heaven as exists on earth. You see, originally, God gave marriage to Adam, to Eve. And one of the the key reasons for that was to, to populate and to fill the earth. Marriage, of course, also, we looked at this a few weeks ago, is very much a type of Christ and the church. So there will be marriage in heaven, but the marriage in heaven will be between Christ and his bride. There won't be the relationships that we have now. This is what Jesus is saying to them. He's saying that you know, the angels also, which are in heaven, notice that, don't marry. They're not given in marriage. They don't marry. They're not trying to produce offspring. Now, as an aside, some people will try and use this verse to say, therefore, what we read in Genesis 6, we have to interpret in a different way. And people come up with all sorts of ideas about the lines of Seth and all this kind of nonsense, which has no biblical foundation and has no logical foundation either, if you actually start to look at it. Um, but in Genesis 6, that we're told that angels that have fallen have come to earth, they inhabited with the, uh, cohabited with the women of the earth and produced offspring. And those offspring became the giants. Of so much of the Old Testament is taken up with this theme. If you try and take away Genesis 6 and that understanding, you can make no sense of the rest of the Old Testament. You have no explanation as to how Goliath came to be the giant that he was, or his four brothers, or Og, the king of Bashan, who was also a giant, or many of these other giant tribes that inhabited Canaan, and those that when the 12 spies went into the land they saw. But if you understand Genesis 6 and just take it as it is written, it makes sense. You realize there was a satanic plot to try and corrupt the human race to stop the seed of the woman coming that the Messiah wouldn't be able to come. It happened before the flood and God sent the flood as an act of mercy to preserve humanity, to make a way for the seed of the woman to pass all the way down, eventually to Mary, that Jesus would then be born. And you simply see that this satanic invasion that Jesus, that Jude, that Peter, and so on make reference to was with the intent of corrupting the human race. But that, this verse doesn't prove that angels are not able to produce offspring. It simply says that they have no need to. This is not the way it is. And again, it clearly states in heaven. And then Jesus carries on and says, and that's touching the dead that they, uh, that they rise. He gets to the real question here because he knows what they're saying. Have you not read in the book of Moses? I love that as well because that just does what should be done to this stupid idea of the documentary hypothesis. Some of you may have stumbled across this idea in the past. came out of the the German um, school of higher criticism uh, in the last few hundred years. Um, And this idea that the Torah, the first five books, 
were not written by Moses, but they're written by five different authors, and they give them different letters to suggest which you know which part was written by which, and so on. And it's all it's all nonsense because Jesus here tells us that it's that we have the book of Moses. These first five books of the Bible were given to us by Moses. Maybe possibly a little bit of editorial work by Ezra, because obviously we have the account of Moses' death and so on. But now the, 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 the Pentateuch, the, the Torah, the first five books given to us by Moses, Jesus makes reference to it here, no question. And he says to them, have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spoke unto him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he says, he is not the God of the dead. He, spoke, he speaks of these individuals as living. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He says he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He says, you therefore do greatly err. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? These questions being thrown at Jesus now. And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. This is referred to sometimes in Deuteronomy as the Shema. This declaration that God is one. It says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, also with all thy strength. But this is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, what Jesus has done is just give us a summary of the law. Law being summarized by the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments divided into two tables of stone. On one of them, it's all about our relationship to God. The other tablet, all about our relationship to our fellow men. The first four commandments are all about our relationship to God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And then the second part of the, the, the law, the second tablet, is all about our relationship to others. Don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't murder, all those things. And so Jesus just summarized everything. These are the great commandments that Jesus gives. And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, and with all the soul and all the strength, and to love thy neighbor as himself is more than all, sorry, more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Great statement by this individual that stepped forward here. Because a number of times in the Old Testament, we have this reference that actually God isn't bothered in the sacrifices. He's, he's looking at the heart. Those sacrifices were important because they all point to Jesus and his shed blood for us. But actually more than the sacrifices is the heart behind them. You know, more than coming to church on a Sunday morning is the reason you come to church. Do you come here on a Sunday morning to serve each other so that you can glorify him how many times have you heard in in church life and not not this church of course other churches you know where people go and oh i didn't get anything out of that this morning well what did you what did you go to put in that's the question it's not about did i get something for me it's what did you put in for other people you know, kind of jokingly said at the start of our service, you know, our service, you know, we'll begin our service. But actually, we don't begin. We just continue our service. We're serving each other. And again, this whole idea that's being presented by this individual is absolutely spot on. 
you know, all the law and everything else, you know, to, to, to love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. That's a great summary of, of the first part of the law, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Those things, those ritualistic, those religious things that people do. It's not to say they don't have a place. But if it's done with the wrong attitude, if it's done with the wrong heart, this is why, as a fellowship here, I've always said to people, anybody that's involved in any kind of ministry within this fellowship, only do it if you really want to do it, and if you want to do it for God. Don't do it because you feel you ought to do it, because the moment you feel you ought to do it, you'll start to look around. You'll start to consider the waves, as Peter did when he stepped out on the sea. You'll start to look at what's going on, and you'll notice there's other people that maybe aren't doing things. And it's the Mary Martha situation. Do you remember Mary just sitting at Jesus' feet? Martha rushing around trying to prepare a meal for everybody. And who is it that Jesus commends? It's Mary. He says to Martha, you're cumbered with a great load of care. Many things were troubling her. And, you know, we can be busy, we can do all sorts of things. But, but that's not in and of itself what it's about. It's having the right attitude, the right heart. You know, when we serve God, when we put out chairs or pack things away, do we do it knowing that we're serving him? You know, we, we put a lot of effort each week to try and make this a, as nice an environment as we can. Do we do it just for each other or are we ultimately doing it for the Lord? And we do it because we want people to grow in grace, because we want people to see that we have such a love for our Savior that it's no trouble. And when you love somebody, doing things for them is never a problem. But when we start to do those things for other people, well, very quickly we get run down. Very quickly we start counting the cost. It's that line by Oswald Chambers again. He said, if I get out of touch with God, the weight of responsibility becomes overwhelmingly crushing. It's just true. You know, if you're, you're not in touch with God and you try and serve God, if you're not in the right place with your heart for God and you try and serve him, the weight of responsibility, what you're doing for other people will become such a big burden. And you'll feel you don't want to do it anymore. But, you know, when you're serving God, when he is the object of your desire, when he's the one you want, when he's the one you are seeking to please, it's never a problem. It's never an issue. A number of times people have said to me in ministry, certainly I think back to when I was doing the, the trips down to Paul and I was leading the worship at the Fellowship in Deal on Sunday mornings. I'd then travel down to Paul in Dorset, about a three-and-a-half-hour trip. I set all the equipment up, lead the worship, do the teaching, spend time talking to people afterwards, ministering, pack everything away, and then drive three-and-a-half hours home, get home about one o'clock in the morning, then go to work the next day. People say, oh, I don't know how you can do it. I wasn't doing it for them. I was doing it for the Lord. You know, and I, yeah, yeah, it's true. Some of those Monday mornings I felt tired, but I also felt... Like Adrian said, you know, he's had a, a tough week, lots of things, but he's been serving God this week as well. What a blessing. What a privilege we get when we get to serve our Creator. 
Let's just carry on. When Jesus saw that, he answered discreetly and said, as he takes this individual aside, answered discreetly, he said unto him, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus recognized that this man was starting to see something that so many of the others hadn't seen. But that's okay. It's not always about the multitude. It's not about convincing everybody. It's about seeing those heart respond, hearts respond that are ready. And we're told, and no man after that dared ask him any question. And Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, how say ye the scribes that Christ is the son of David? So Jesus is now going to get his own back. He's going to ask a few questions himself. He said, for David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calls him Lord. He says, well, how then can he be his son? Because surely if he's the father and and, and it's one of his son, then the son is less than the father. But David is calling his son Lord. How does this work? He says, and the common people heard him gladly. I'm not saying that necessarily they understood him, but they recognized that he's asking a question. He's teaching them something of significance. And he said unto them in his doctrine, beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces. And for us, yeah, we see it, don't we? Those people that walk around in nice flowing robes and, you know, often you see them on telly with dog collars on. They like to be seen. That's not to doubt the sincerity of some, but at the same time, there's nothing in Scripture that would suggest that for servants of Jesus Christ. And the chief seats in the synagogue and the uppermost room at feasts. You know, these people, they like to be seen. They like to push themselves forward. And we're told, which devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. Jesus says he's not fooled by this stuff. These people that love to be seen in the public places and and Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples and said unto them, Verily I say unto you that this poor widow has cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want, did cast in all that she had, even all her living. I remember a song years ago written by a friend of mine called Consistent Christians. And one of the lines in the song says, God above doesn't work in fractions. You have to give him all. You know, and there are many in the, the church today that are quite happily giving of their abundance. You know, they have time, they have resources they have whatever necessary and they're happy to give to that point but are we in that place like this widow that we are prepared to give everything for the lord is there anything that's more important to us you see i love this example because to me as people that are waiting for the lord to return this is how we should all be we should all be wanting to to throw in everything we've got you know, sometimes we, we're prepared to give that much 
but not, every, not, not, not all of our time, not all of our effort and energy. And we'll come up with all great reasons why we can't. Like this other bunch of people that have been putting the money in and so on that Jesus refers to here. But he looks at this woman and he sees the heart. He sees the heart. It goes back to what all of these things really are all tied together by this, by, in this chapter by this theme that we see at the end. It's looking at the heart. The heart of this woman was to give everything. And that's what our service to God should really be about. Not holding back. Giving him everything. You know, I believe that as individuals and as a fellowship, if we can learn this lesson to give God everything, I'm not just talking money. Money is part of it, of course. But if we can learn to give God everything we have, every last mite, as it were, every ounce of energy, if we learn to give God that, well, God will really bless us. God, we, we, you can never outgive God. There'll be such blessing that well, I believe that this school and these walls won't be able to contain it. Just as when the children of Israel were giving for the work of the temple, they had to, in the end, say to the people, Stop, got so much. I believe it'll be like that here. We've got to learn to give God our everything. And again, I'm not asking for money, I'm talking about your hearts. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this time this morning. Lord, thank you that you confound the wise. You confound the arrogant and the proud and those that would seek to promote and push their own agendas. Oh Lord, how you love the humble. How, Lord, you love those that seek you with a pure heart, with a whole heart. Father, help us to be servants who are faithful in the things you've given us. And Lord, who are willing and desire to give you all. Challenge us this morning, Lord, if there is anything that we have kept back from you. In terms of our affection, our time, our resources. Oh Lord, just convict us, we pray. That we would give you all. And Lord, as we give you all, Lord, we ask for your blessing upon this fellowship. We ask your blessing upon our lives. That as we wait for your return, Lord, we would grow together. That, Lord, you would add to our numbers. That you would bring people in through these doors. And that this building would not be able to contain the number of people that you bring for your glory. Lord, do something that is so exceedingly abundantly above all that we have ever asked or thought. Lord, we pray again this morning for all those unsaved loved ones. That you would do a miracle in these lives. That you would transform them by the work of your Spirit. That, Lord, you would break down every barrier that is in the way. That, Lord, you would remove every principality and power that would stand against these souls coming to know you. That, Lord, you would stop any power, force, individual, plot, plan, or anything that would hinder the ministry and the work of this fellowship in this area. That you would have a freedom to move. And that, Lord, we would see lives transform and come to know you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, fellowship together over some teas and coffee, shall we?